Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Hemant Meta. If you like what you're listening to, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. Maggie Rowe grew up as an evangelical Christian in the suburbs of Chicago, and for reasons we'll get into, when she was 19, she landed in a Christian mental health center where she spent three months. While parts of that experience were disturbing, some of it actually helped her eventually walk away from the faith. She's now a comedy writer who has worked on shows like Arrested Development, and she's currently working on a Netflix series called Flaked, which is about to start its second season. Her new book is called Sin Bravely, a memoir of spiritual disobedience. Maggie, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, let me just get right into your story. I'm really curious that you grew up as an evangelical Christian, but if I have your story right, your family wasn't actually all that religious. So how did you end up being really, really religious? It's an excellent question. Yes, my parents were very moderate Christians. Um, I went to Sunday school, however, and my teacher, Miss Trimley, told us to imagine the worst thing that you could ever imagine happening. And I imagined my parents dying and it somehow being my fault. Like I'd forgotten to refrigerate the milk and <laughs> given it to them <laughs> or something. Um, and then she said, now imagine that feeling going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's hell. And my anxiety just shot. I was terrified. And Miss Trimley told us that the good news was that we could be saved from this fate by accepting Jesus into our heart. But the only catch was we had to mean it sincerely and we had to be on fire for the Lord. And I didn't, like, you don't get a certificate in the mail, so I must have <laughs> said that prayer, you know, 10,000 times the, just trying to manufacture enough faith, enough belief so that it took so that the conversion counted and I was seen worthy in the eyes of the Lord. And no matter how many times my parents reassured me, I, I didn't I, I couldn't be completely convinced because I'd seen that my parents had been wrong about things before. You know, they've thought that Joker's Wild came on after Tic-Tac-Toe and it actually came on before. So they were, they had proven themselves to be flawed in some ways. And I, 
I, I just couldn't trust their assurances. And how old were you when all of this was happening? Started when I was five. I accepted Christ when I was five. Okay, so um, just to be clear, your parents, they were religious, they were Christian, but not like super hardcore. But the church you went to had like a Sunday school, and that's where you kind of learned about all this hellfire sort of stuff. Yep, that's when I glommed onto it. And then also, you know, since I was a mature child, of course. my parents would take me to the Sunday night evening service that was with adults. And I would hear the same message there. And for some reason with my parents, it just didn't, it never bothered them. Um, but like there was a verse that was... Um, if you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, God will spit you out of his mouth on judgment day. You know, and I would hear verses like this and I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm I, I feel very lukewarm. You know, I just want to go watch the Brady Bunch and yeah. eat nails. You know, that doesn't seem like a girl on fire for the Lord. Yeah, you're not on fire for Jesus, but neither were your parents. So what did you think was going to happen to them? Um, you know, that's a good question. For some reason, I always felt like their faith would be enough. And I, you know, had this these kind of recurring visions of them going up to heaven and me being pulled down to hell and screaming for them to help, but them not being able to do anything because... They were human, and this was God's will. And they were sad to see me go down, <laughs> but there was just nothing they could do. It was really a terrifying image to have as a kid. So you're growing up in this environment, and the, it sounds like the worst part about all of this church-going experience is you actually fell for what they were telling you. You really believed it. And maybe the reason other kids don't experience the same thing you did is that even they kind of temper... Uh, what they're learning in these schools, in the Sunday school, like, all right, I'm going to hell, but it's not going to be like yeah, that yeah, bad. Like, or, or even if I feel like I would have had an easier time if my growing up, if my parents had had been hypocrites or had clearly demonstrated that, you know, that, that they didn't believe, but they believed it and they were wonderful people. So it made it very hard to um, doubt it or separate myself from it. Sure. sure. So one of the things uh, that I've heard atheists say is that, and it's controversial even among other atheists, it's that teaching kids about hell or that they're going to suffer for all of eternity, whether or not you know they're literally on fire, is right. that teaching kids about hell is a form of psychological abuse. And it sounds like from what you're telling me, that seems pretty fair to say in your case. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, I think it is accurate. I, I've sometimes referred to it as spiritual terrorism, too. You know, like, because you can get into um, a kid's head and, like, kids are already scared of monsters or the boogeyman, but, you know, nothing compares to the idea of eternal suffering that we were taught. Um, St. Augustine actually had a quote about it that he called it the abominable proposition. And really, to me, it is the most abominable proposition that you could put out there. Yeah. I, I, I do know atheists who say, I don't mind my kids hanging around, you know, religious people, religious relatives. But if they introduced hell 
into the conversation, they are not seeing my child again. And part of me thinks, oh, that seems kind of extreme, but there, there's kind of a reason they're, they're putting that out there. That's great. I feel like that should be <laughs> every parent's attitude. Um, like, so where, when you went to uh, middle school, you, you were five when all this happened. When you went to school, were you going to public school, public high school, public college? I was going to public high school and, you know, I was taught that we needed to witness or, you know, proselytize, try to convert people to Christianity, which was the last thing that I wanted to do. You know, I didn't want to tell people that I thought my, like, I I was having a terrible time with this, but. Why? uh, Well, I mean, because of this kind of constant fear of hell, but I felt that I must convert or witness to people because that's clearly what it says in the Bible. You know, Christians are to be fishers of men (laughs) is the term. So, you know, I would do the thing where I'd try to, you know, work Bible verses naturally into conversation and, you know, be like, you know, there was one, I had a crush on this one boy when I talk about in my book, but that, I, you know, I loved him so much, but I was like, gosh, if I love this guy, of course I should witness to him. He's going to be going to hell. Right. So, you know, we were at the beach one day and I was like, you know, Jesus said that your <laughs> sins are as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach and your iniquities spread as far as east is from west. <laughs> and, you know, of course he didn't want to talk to me again. You know, I had just ruins the, ruined the whole thing, but not exactly a pickup line. Yeah. Not a great pickup line. (laughs) I think I once heard Penn Jillette say something like, uh, who is an atheist. And he said, look, if you really believe this stuff, if you really believe I'm going to hell, I would kind of, I'm paraphrasing here. I would be really upset and angry if you didn't proselytize to me. It's kind of a form of love in that weird sort of way. Absolutely. And, you know, Pendulette was in uh, this show that I created called Hollywood Hell House. Um, <laughs> have you heard of Hell Houses before? Unfortunately, I have. So those are the Halloween things they set up so that people can go through and realize how horrible life would be if they didn't have God in their life. Exactly. So it's like a haunted house. And, you know, kids go through the different rooms and you see different examples of sin. So you see a girl going to a rape. You see a girl getting an abortion. Uh, you see two gay men getting married. Uh, you see someone uh, who's Jewish. And then when you get down to the end of the haunted house, you see all of those people burning in hell and uh, screaming in agony. Fun for the whole family. Yeah, it's great. Great. Yeah, great fun, especially for kids. But what I did was I pretended that I had a youth group in Hollywood and I contacted the creator of these hell houses and got a kit of how to, and the script and how to do everything. So at the Center for Inquiry, which is, which is an atheist organization here in Hollywood, um, I put up a um, hell house. <laughs> uh, and Pendulette uh, played Satan. <laughs> um, uh, Bill Maher played Satan for some of it. And Andy Richter was Jesus. Uh, and the, the whole idea was just to show people living here, like this very dangerous practice that's, that's being put out there. That's hilarious and still kind of frightening that 
<laughs> that people well it's sad that it's exposing them to look this this is happening in a lot of places it's not just us and not and in orange county you know not even that far from us two right. hours south of here so uh, to get to the crux of your book uh, you actually went to a christian rehab center for a few months what brought that on it, it was a mental health center i think what what ins- yeah. like made you go there because i think you went voluntarily I went totally voluntarily, yes, and it was not a lockdown thing. Um, uh, basically, it's an odd kind of turning point, but it's true. Uh, I, When I was 19, when I was in college in Ithaca, I went to see a screening of Akira Kurosawa's film Dreams, just this Japanese art house film, but it dealt with these ideas of sin and retribution And all of my health fears that I had kind of started suppressing in high school, I just pushed them down and down, you know, because I was worried about, you know, you just get concerned with other things. All of those fears from my unconscious flooded up um, and I was in just complete panic. I heard this yelping sound and then realized that it was coming from my own mouth. And I went out of the theater, my uh, boyfriend, who I had started having sex with, which was a big trick, you know, I I broke up with him. I said, I can't have sex anymore. I need to recommit myself to Jesus. I've made a terrible mistake. Um, But I couldn't, after seeing that film, shake the idea that I might be going to hell. And the reason that I chose an evangelical facility to go to, my parents found it for me, was I felt like anywhere else they would just say, hell's a scare tactic from the Middle Ages, you know, move on, grow up. Uh, Yeah, if you went to like a secular facility, they wouldn't accommodate your beliefs there probably. Right, and and that wouldn't have helped me. Uh, So I needed to get counseling from within the faith. Uh, And I had some terrible therapists um, and one wonderful therapist but my terrible therapist, a um, woman named Bethany, when I told her that I would get so upset worrying about my salvation that I would throw up, um, she just immediately determined that I was bulimic and I thought I was fat. And I <laughs> tried to explain. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, not, I'm so not worried about my weight. So not worried about that. And her little line that makes me laugh now, it didn't make me laugh then, but she was like, you know regurgitated stomach acid will strip the enamel from your teeth. And I think you should save those pearly whites for the pearly gates. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she and other therapists had like this, this kind of, you know, a diagnosis that they immediately wanted to slap on me. And I was like, no, I really, I'm really just scared of going to hell. Like that is it. I feel like the rule, like, I'm not a therapist, but therapy 101 ought to be if your client tells you this is what's wrong, you should pay attention to that. Right. And and what she did was she was like, uh, well, a very common feature of bulimia is denial. So the more that I denied it, the more in her mind it was um, making her point more valid <laughs> rather than less. <laughs> you can't win. Couldn't win. Couldn't win with that one. So you had a lot of therapists, unfortunately, like her, but you had one good one? I had a wonderful therapist um, named Dr. Benton, 
And he told me this idea is from Martin Luther. And the quote was, uh, sin bravely in order to know the forgiveness of God. And basically his advice was, don't worry about any sins. Go out there, do whatever you want. Um, follow your own conscience. It's more important that you believe that you are safe and that you are not going to be punished than that you follow the letter of the law. Wow. And that was really the thing that kind of uh, started my journey to recovery. So you didn't suddenly lose your faith, but all of a sudden this rigid fundamental beliefs that you held, that kind of loosened up a bit, like the first domino had fallen. Yes, very well said. Yes, that was the that was the very first thing. It's somebody telling me not to be worried. Like, and it was such a radical idea. I was like, "What? What do you mean? I can just do what I want?" And and he said, "Well, what what are you going to do? Are you going to go murder people? Are you going to like release some dangerous gas on a subway? You're not. You're fine. You're fine. Don't worry. Don't worry." And, you know, I really did kind of start this process of sinning bravely. I started off with little things. I started swearing. You monster. (laughs) I know, I know. But, like, that seemed terrible because I had gone to college and I had started using, you know, just language, you know, even saying the word shit. Like, I was like, you know, then I was like, oh, my God. But, you know, I've been saying this. So, anyway, I started off small and then. Kind of the climax of my book is where I it sounds <laughs> it sounds like a crazy idea, but um, I went to an amateur night strip club um, <laughs> at a place called Lookers, whose slogan was "Girls You'd Care to See Naked." <laughs> that sounds so derogatory. <laughs> yeah, I know it's really low bar, really <laughs> low bar. But um, I figured I could pass that bar. Um, Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then I uh, I danced to Patti Smith's song "Gloria," that had the lyric "Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine." Uh, and that was. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was a big moment for me. Uh, afterwards, I did feel this flood of anxiety and regret, but then afterwards, it kind of released a little. You know, it really did have the effect. It's like you know, if you're afraid of going on an airplane and you expose yourself to that, you know, you actually do it. It you know, you acclimate to it, uh, and that's what kind of happened in my case. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I I used to pray every night. And the first night when I started having doubts that I went to bed one night and I didn't pray and I woke up and I'm like, this is weird because I feel the same. And like, there's no scars on my body or something, but it took a little, it was a weird feeling because you feel like you did something wrong, but you're not exactly sure. Right. Um, how long did that acclimation process take for you be- between like taking that step of dancing to finally, you know what? I think I'm going to be okay. Um, seven years. <laughs> okay. It was a long period then until you felt really comfortable. It was a long period. Might have been even more than that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really, really stayed with me. It was a really hard thing to, uh, to shake. It's, it was just so imprinted. Um, in my brain, there's a verse from Proverbs that is, you know, 
um, etch the word of God into a child's mind and it will be long uh, before it will become unetched or, you know, yeah. uh, or dissolved. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the exact language. But it was also training up a child and uh, evangelicals are known to have that like four to 14 window. Get them when they're young because it's yep. much harder to to get away from it then. Yep. Um, how did you go? It sounds like this experience, not just at the, the mental health center, but everything leading up to it and right after it, it sounds so traumatic in some ways. And yet now you're writing for comedy shows and you've, you've kind of, you're in this career where you're writing and you're using your experience to be funny. It seems like such a leap. How do you make that leap? Yeah, it was a long, pro- I mean, the, the anxiety about it really did stay for quite, quite a long time. Um, I mean, the process was, was very gradual. I, one thing that I started doing that uh, certainly would have been against what my Sunday school teachers would have taught was I started picturing God as a woman. I pictured a female entity. Um, that idea kind of let me believe in a more loving idea of God. And then as time went on, I stopped thinking of God as being some sort of outside entity at all and started picturing God or goddess or, you know, a a higher consciousness as being part of myself. Um, So instead of praying to like some outside creature or deity, I would kind of try to connect to my higher self. Um, and that's kind of the idea that, that, that was able to kind of pull me out of it a little bit. Do you have a label that you call yourself now? I do not have a label that I call myself now. I'm a member of a Zen center. So I would say that I am closest to, um, Buddhism more than anything else. I'm a regular meditation practitioner. Um, but even that, you know, um, I don't believe the Buddhist ideas literally either. So I don't have an idea of literal reincarnation or, you know, any of the, I don't, uh, the any of the deities in Buddhism. I don't take that literally either. I, I tend to think that all of these religions are kind of pointers, uh, metaphors, poetry, images that point to a way of living that can conceivably make you happier and more at peace. Um, so there's no religion that I, that I take literally. So you follow kind of the philosophical side of it, if not the religious side yeah. of it. Yeah. And just the, I mean, the practice of meditation, has helped me tremendously. That was one of the things that Dr. Benton, the therapist that I had there had told me was just sit down and watch your thoughts. (laughs) Like you can be separate from them. You can connect to this part that's separate from these rolling obsessions because all day long I was just going through verses in my head and weighing, trying to figure out, am I really saved? Am I not? And he was like, you are not that thinking mind. You are something bigger than that. Um, so, so that idea was helpful for me. Do you know if he's read the book? No, and I've really tried to get in touch with him, and I have not been able to. Okay. I mean, uh, I only knew his last name. You know, Sure. 
I, I kind of, part of me wonders how he even got a job in a center like that when so many of his colleagues seem like they weren't as open-minded. I know. I'm, I'm actually developing for Showtime um, a pilot based on my book. And if it does go to series, um, his role will kind of be as a double agent <laughs> uh, where he's kind of combating some of these, you know, ideologies and practices that he disagreed with from within the system. That sounds like a, I feel like you can get a pastor to do that role too. Like the subversive pastor who's super charismatic and who's actually nefarious on the inside and yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to change the church from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a really positive mission, you know, you're working. If I have this right, you're working on a Netflix show right now called flaked. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yes, Flaked come the second season comes out June fifteenth. Congratulations! Um, yeah, so uh, it's it's starring Will Arnett, uh, who plays um, a recovering alcoholic in Venice, California. It's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have a question, and I don't mean this. I. As I'm thinking of this question, it's going to come off in the wrong way. I don't want it to. But as someone who hasn't been in a writer's room, I no doubt it is important to have a diversity of voices who can, you know, uh, have different types of input into the storylines and everything. And I'm guessing you're probably surrounded by a lot of people who are not very religious or who didn't really grow up in that same environment that you did. And I'm really curious what can someone with an evangelical background bring to that comedy room that maybe your colleagues can't? Good question too. Um, I would say I, I do still have these ideas um, from the Bible that are kind of powerful myths, like um, kind of ready, um, ready at hand and not, I'm not taking credit for this part of flaked at all, but I did, you know, kind of push and believe in the kind of redemptive nature um, of the storyline, you know, this kind of idea of, you know, the, the main character is kind of exiled and then, you know, as an alcoholic and, and he does kind of find some higher power in a sense. Um, but I do feel like the, uh, like I've been trained in, in myth and mythic storytelling uh, in some ways. And I, I feel like maybe that's something that I bring to the table. I'm, I've also done every freaking new age religious thing <laughs> in the world. Uh, so the actually the episode that I wrote for Flaked involves a guy who starts his own religion. Uh, and... Uh, which is kind of based on a guy who actually did start his own religion in Venice, California. Uh, but I feel like I'm, I'm well equipped and know that world pretty well too. And then if you're doing that and you're among a lot of writers and you've worked with a lot of shows, written a lot of um, uh, ideas for shows and everything, do, what do you think comedy writers in general seem to get wrong about religion when they write about it, when they talk about it in stand up or anything like that? 
Uh, do you feel that it they're always they're ever unfair to religious people or religion in general? Because it's so easy to make fun of it. I mean, it's so powerful. So it's a subject for so many people. But where do they get it wrong? Totally. Well, I feel like there are people like my parents that are actually have really benefited from their faith. So it's not as the simple black and white thing. Um, and I know even like Penn Jillette, who's, you know, wonderful to do my show and I really appreciated it. He really, um, with some of the people in the cast who said they were spiritual, he's like, that's bullshit. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's bullshit. You're in or you're out. It's one or the other. Um, and I feel like there's some middle ground there that uh, people often don't recognize and just the value like that not all christians are fundamentalists or evangelicals there really are people that look at the bible as metaphors as stories as guides to living that would still call themselves christians but that don't believe it literally um and just recognizing that there is that camp of people and unfair to pigeonhole everybody kind of in that fundamentalist yeah. area. Yeah, and even I didn't know, and probably until my mid-20s, that there were other kind of kinds of Christians. You know, I just didn't have any acquaintance with that. Um, there's a former evangelical pastor named Rob Bell who wrote this uh, book called Love Wins. And got in trouble for book. that. <laughs> you what? He got in a lot of trouble for that book. Yes, he got in a lot. So you know, yeah, got in a lot of trouble for that book. The, the subtitle was "What if Hell Doesn't Exist?" Mm-hmm. And it, and I just when I read it, I just like wept. I was like, oh, there there are other ways to <laughs> interpret this book than I was than I was taught. And I probably would go further than. Rob Bell. Sure. Uh, but that was a real starting point for me. I, I, long time ago, I visited a whole bunch of Christian churches for a project I was doing. And most of the pastors at these churches, um, afterwards, when I asked if I could chat with them, almost all of them said no. And a lot of them were evangelical pastors. Um, Rob Bell was, I believe, the only one who was willing to have a sit down one on one with me. Really? And yeah, and uh, the conversation was awesome. And I had the same sort of reaction you did, which was, I'm not used to hearing this sort of thing. And certainly at the time I talked to him, it was a weird discussion because I hadn't met many Christians like him. Now I've met a lot of Christians like him. Um, But yeah, it is kind of a jolt when you realize, oh, this is someone who has a lot of respect and, you know, a fame among a certain type of Christian and yet he's saying these things I never really heard growing up in church. And that's unusual. Yes. He has, he had one line in that book that I'll always remember. And it's, um, what if the missionary gets a flat tire? <laughs> and so somebody doesn't get saved. Like, mm-hmm. does God really let that happen? Like, <laughs> um, but yes. Yeah. Uh, Rob Bell, uh, Peter Rollins is someone I have read. Um, and Richard Rohr, like people that are, pointing out different ways to uh, reframe these passages. Um, And it sounds like people like that are on the rise too, because we are seeing kind of like what you're saying, which is people who may still believe in something, but they don't, they definitely don't have 
any, uh, they don't want to belong to an organized religion, certainly not the one they grew up in. So whatever, I think the demographers always lump them in as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And it's a rising group of people, but it's not rising because of atheists. It's rising because there's a lot of people who are like, I believe in something, but it's it doesn't fit any of the categories I'm familiar with. And we're we're still seeing that number grow. I think you're totally right. Uh, and I've heard it's the first time I've heard the term. I heard it a couple of months ago, but Christians without boundaries. Never heard it being <laughs> called like that. But but the idea that, that a group of people that don't think of Christianity as being a superior faith but simply the one that they are connecting with in the same way that I can go to Pilates without thinking that it's better than going to CrossFit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a different method. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank well, you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. And, uh, Maggie Rowe's new book is called sin bravely. It's a memoir of spiritual disobedience. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs>